Welcome to the Smart Connector, the podcast that helps entrepreneurs be the leader their ideal people love. Build your influence, wealth and success, attract others for all the right reasons and become a Smart Connector, the architect of your amazing business and life. I tracked down Donna Hart on LinkedIn as I was looking for interesting female entrepreneurs to interview. Donna's awesome profile and commitment to the well-being of her employees and clients immediately struck me, so I couldn't wait to interview her. Her firm is entirely devoted to family law, so she deals a lot with the aftermath of relationship breakdown, which is sadly something many entrepreneurs endure. I know you'll enjoy this telephone conversation between us. Welcome to the Smart Connector podcast dedicated to entrepreneurial relationship success. My name's Jane Baylor and I'm your host. Today I'm so excited to be interviewing a really, really powerful female entrepreneur, Donna Hart, owner of The Family Law Co, which specializes in divorce and especially high net worth cases. Donna's the proud winner of the Chartered Legal Executives President's Award in 2015 for outstanding service to the legal community. She was shortlisted for Lawyer of the Year through the Modern Law Awards in 2015 and the Family Law Awards in 2016. She's highly commended in the Visionary Leadership category for National Chartered Legal Executives Awards in 2018 and she's a finalist for the Joyce Aram Award for advancing the legal profession this year. She's also been recognized as one of the most influential women in Exeter. So welcome, welcome Dr. <laughs> Thanks. It's great to have you here. No, thank you for having me. You've gained a high profile as being a very caring leader in your sector, Donna. Can you tell us why you prioritize people so much? Well, I think really there's a couple of reasons. The type of work I do. So in family law, I'm often working with vulnerable people. So I've learned a lot of those softer skills in dealing with those types of people over the years. And also I've got a chronic health condition. So wow. I think it's, I can be a bit more understanding of those suffering with ill health in the workplace and, you know, realizing that sometimes just making minor adjustments can go a long way in helping people achieve success. Right. You've actually created and you run a well-being group at the Family Law Co, organising activities and discussions to promote both good physical and mental health of your team. So what what do you think is the value of this? What what led you to set it up and, and what's the value of it? Yeah, well, funnily enough, when I was diagnosed with my health condition, it was three years ago, and I ended up finding out that actually somebody in our Plymouth office suffered with the same condition. Nobody, nobody really spoke about it. So we sort of set the wellbeing group for people who had health complaints so that we could sort of get together and just sometimes have a little bit of a, a grumble about how we felt and yes. share tips with things that we were doing to take care of ourselves. And it sort of grew from there. And in the end, um, we sort of ended up involving the whole company. Um, we just wanted to create a culture which ultimately had to start from the top, you know, the people that own the business, yes. um, yes. making sure that it was okay to talk about both your physical and mental health um, in the workplace and that people didn't see that as perhaps being a hindrance to them progressing or being able to do their job. And so as well as doing activities and, you know, trying to get pe people to come and speak to us, we often do things during the winter and we've put apps in place. 
um, and we've got in insurance so that people can go and have alternative health therapies. So we do all of those things, but ultimately it's about the culture and making sure that as well as doing those things, it's not just being done um, to put on social media that we do those things. It's actually about ensuring that people buy into it and they know that it's genuine and authentic. Yes, which, which is incredibly important because there's nothing worse than feeling as though you're, you're working for a company that is just out to use you and get what they can with you without really caring about you as a, as a human being. Yeah, and the type of work we do means we are looking after other people. So we have to look after ourselves to make sure that we can do our job properly. Yes, okay. You probably don't know this about me, Donna, but I am also a breast cancer survivor. So I'm very aware that people have all sorts of assumptions about what it's like to live with either a chronic uh, health condition or to be surviving from a life-threatening illness like cancer. Yeah. It's very easy to feel very isolated, I think, with those conditions or, or those experiences. So I think what you're doing there is absolutely incredible. Yeah, and I think a lot of people often feel that people might perceive them as being lazy or not pulling their weight. And quite often, I think some people go into work when they're not feeling well because they're determined to prove that even though they have this health condition, that they can still do their job. So it's yes. about letting people know it's okay to sometimes have a bad day. Well, I mean, we all have bad days and good days, don't we? I mean, that's part of being human, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. So to have that recognised in the workplace is absolutely, you know, I just think it's great. So, I mean, let's talk for a moment about mental health as well, because mental health is something that is a, it's a very current topic. It's something that's been talked about a lot in the media recently. And of course... You know, many people battle with mental health issues. In fact, I, I would go so far as to say it's it's normal. Anxiety and depression to do with the pace of change in society today, financial pressures, relationship pressures, family pressures, all of those things. I'm sure that you come across that a lot, both with your clients and perhaps with, with the people who work for you. Yeah, completely. And, you know... People will go, be going through different stages depending on where they are in their life as to how much they may be suffering. So I think it's just about having that open policy so that people feel that it's okay to talk about it. Yes. We always take part in um, Time to Talk, both our Exeter and Plymouth offices, and we lay on breakfast. You know, and we'll have some good conversations about mental health and, um, and how that may look uh, and what we can do to try and help ourselves and help other people around us. A lot of people do this for their clients, but it may not be seemed as important for their staff but ultimately you know it's your staff that are looking after your clients so it, it's just as important that you're looking after both. Definitely. The legal profession is notorious for hard work and long hours. Can it only be hustle and grind or is it possible to work smart not hard in your sector? Well I completely agree. About 18 months ago I, I cut down to a four-day week. My targets stayed the same. I've managed to do that. I think it's helped me be much more focused when I'm in the office. There is a culture in law firms, and I've worked in, in big law firms previously, where people think it's important to be seen there really early in the morning and also to be seen there last thing at night, and that that means that you're working really hard um, and that you're really busy. But quite often, as we know, if we're given two hours to do something or an hour to do it, we work to the time that we're given. So sometimes I find that people that sit in the office for longer actually are doing about the same amount of work because Ultimately, if you're not stopping to have a break, you're not going to be as productive as somebody who does take a lunch hour and goes out and gets some fresh air or has something 
nice to eat comes away from their work. And again, it comes back to how can you be giving the best to your clients if you're not giving yourself the best of you? You know, here we have a table tennis table, but we try and encourage everybody to stop at lunchtime, go out, get some fresh air, um, stop and have a game of table tennis, have something nice to eat. You know, if you came here this evening at half five, there may be a couple of people about if, but on the whole, the office will be pretty empty because we encourage everybody to go home on time. And ultimately, their caseload should be enough to keep them busy in the hours they work here, but it shouldn't be so much that they're having to work till 11 o'clock at night. Yes. And, and how has that impacted recruitment, staff turnover? Do you have any metrics in place to actually monitor the impact of your very people-friendly policies? Well, I mean, in terms of particularly our lawyers, we have a really low turnover. We've had some people that have given up work because they've made family choices when they've had a baby. But to be honest, we, we don't really have any lawyers that, that leave the company. We've got one at the moment who's going to live in New Zealand. But other than that, um, because I think people do like the work-life balance, and it's not just something we say, it is something that we do. So, so I mean, of course, there's, there is a lot of cost and effort involved in replacing people, which is why one of the most important targets for a lot of entrepreneurs is to reduce employee churn. So sounds like, like you're doing absolutely brilliantly in that respect. Yeah, I mean, recruitment is expensive and it can also be destructive. If, if you have a high turnover of staff, the people that are left behind can feel quite anxious about that because people yeah. are coming and going all the time and yeah. people are being trained. Yeah, I mean, we have recruited recently, but it's mostly been to growth rather than through people leaving. Yes. What would you say is the best way to develop relationships with your, with your clients, Donna, and get them to choose you over, over other law firms? Well, I just think it's about being human and building a rapport with them. I think because we're quite lucky here, we just specialise in family law. So yes. we're not trying to attract corporate clients and um, other types of clients. We, we can be softer in that approach and our reception areas are child friendly and they're meant to be relaxing and make people feel comfortable. And I think a lot of people when they come in are quite anxious and then they meet us and they say, oh, it's nothing what, like what I expected. I was expecting it to be quite you know, scary and, and, and yeah. old fashioned and, and people come in and they meet us and um and they feel I think they feel at home and and that's how we want clients to feel when they leave here. Yes, yes. Handling divorce cases constantly must mean that you know a lot about people and it's probably not the best side either. Um so what have you learned about human nature as a result of your work, Donna? Well I think what we try to remember here is that people um, normally going through divorce or separation are ultimately scared and they're feeling a loss, a loss of control over their lives. You know, where are they going to live? When are they going to see their children? How much money are they going to have? And all of those things are going to cause stress and quite often stress doesn't bring out the best in us. So I think our job really is to just try and reassure clients and, and give them some tools to enable them to feel like they do have some control over their lives yes. and know that how they're feeling right now isn't how they're going to feel forever. So, you know, we'll see people at their worst but we try and lead by example. So, you know, if we get lots of aggressive letters in from another solicitor, you know, what we say is let's respond to that letter in the tone that we would have liked it to have been received in rather yes. than going back and, and firing off a whole load of other insults because that doesn't do anything to help clients. And ultimately, if we're dealing with families, we may be involved in that family for a year or two years, sometimes longer. But what we don't want to do is ruin that relationship so much because these people may have children that are ultimately they're going to share the same grandchildren and there are all those other factors you have to take into account really and, and our job is to try and just help people through a difficult time 
and then leave them coming out of that feeling stronger and more confident to get on with their lives rather than you know going in like a whirlwind and and making everything 10 times worse i mean as somebody who's experienced divorce and, and separation myself i i have also experienced different types of lawyers and i have experienced and i know that my friends have experienced ones who they would describe as rottweilers what what is the impact of the rottweiler approach on the family law process well i mean i've sometimes had clients who've come in where they've been to another firm of solicitors previously and i think sometimes the trouble with that approach is that you may not be listening to your client and clients when they come in to see you they're often feeling quite vulnerable and i've met people who say they went through a whole divorce with a lawyer that they didn't feel happy with but they didn't feel able to even say that and they felt that they had to stay there Um, and that's quite sad because you know even i understand that not everybody I meet is going to instruct me. It's, it's horses for courses. And we have a huge team here. And we're all very different in our approach and our ways. We carry through our ethos, but we're also very different. And we try and match people up to the right lawyer that's going to be good for them. But ultimately, it can make proceedings much longer. It can make them more expensive. And it can have damaging effect on the family. Yes, yes, definitely. And if you feel as though your clients are being bullied, which I think is probably also quite common in divorce cases, if you get somebody who's particularly strong or dominant or determined to achieve a certain outcome, how do you stand up to those clients? What, 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 what kind of strategies and tactics do you adopt? Well, again, it's about educating them that you know, shouting the loudest or demanding the most isn't necessarily going to get you the outcome. Yes. The court's approach to dealing with divorce, particularly finances, is overall is fairness. And, you know, fairness, if you feel like you've been the hurt party, may not be what the court interprets as being fair. So yes. it's making sure people understand where the court will be coming from. Yes. So they know the factors that the court will take into account when making the decision. So they'll know, for example, that they're not going to perhaps get more money because their spouse has chosen to have a relationship with somebody else. That's not what the court will factor um, into the process so yeah. I think if clients have a, a proper understanding of how these decisions are being made earlier on it helps them to understand that and also quite often if you give an aggressive letter you know your client may say to you you know they want to write an aggressive letter back yeah. but sometimes by showing them well actually look let's respond to this in a in a much more neutral way still standing our ground but let's respond and in the tone that we want them to write in quite often it will bring that correspondence back down because if you have what we call this table tennis effect of aggressive letters going back and forth not actually moving the case forward it's costing the client money but you're not actually making any progress so I think if we can explain to the clients why we're doing what we're doing and they understand that then they're happy to go with that approach I mean there are times when you know if you have somebody particularly aggressive or litigant in person you you do have to protect your client from that and you're sort of that barrier between that person who's trying to dominate um, the proceedings and your client and that, that's what our job ultimately is to do yes. to sort of take the emotion out um, yes. and deal with it for our client but it is about doing it in the right way yes I understand and you you um, specialize in in high net worth cases as well don't you Donna so are, are they different in in some respects to should we say the run-of-the-mill divorce what what particular characteristics would you say I mean, sometimes they can be easier because, again, finances is about fairness and meeting people's needs. Yes. The more there is in the pot, the easier it is to meet everybody's needs. Right. Some of the most trickier cases are ones where 
there isn't quite enough money to make two homes. So ultimately, somebody's going to be coming away feeling maybe bitter or upset because there isn't enough there to do that. So mm. sometimes those can be the more trickier cases. The high net worth cases can be trickier in terms of there are more assets for lawyers to look at and more papers and there can be complex trust. So from a legal point of view, it can be a little more work for the lawyer. But ultimately, the outcome is normally um, going to mean meeting everybody's needs. And so that's always a good outcome. Yes, yes. So Donna, um, unfortunately, the divorce rate is very high amongst entrepreneurs. So I'm sure that you probably do come across a few entrepreneurs. And I'd be interested to get your perspective on why the divorce rate is so high amongst our sector. Well, I think sometimes entrepreneurs are very passionate about what they're doing. And I think what they're doing is often more than a job. So it can be more than the nine to five. And I think normally what happens in, in these types of cases, um, particularly if you have somebody at home, and you have somebody working on this business, both are doing what they think is right for their family. And I often meet a lot of entrepreneurs who come in and they say, well, I didn't know my family were unhappy that I was away from them so much because I thought I was doing the right thing because I was trying to improve you know, our financial position and make our lives better longer term. So I think it goes back to, again, this self-care. So if you are an entrepreneur, it's really important that you actually look after yourself and you spend time doing the things you enjoy away from um, your business and spending time with your family, but also ensuring that your family is understanding what you're doing and why you're doing it and trying to build in that balance of family and work life so that everybody appreciates the other's role and everybody understands why everybody's doing what they are. Yeah. Yeah. So it's about communication, about understanding and being responsive to other people's values. Yeah. And I mean, the first thing we do when people come in and see us is we explore with them, is this marriage really over? Yeah. You know, are you going through a tough time? Are you being reactive to something? You know, we work closely with relationship counsellors and again, all different types of counsellors. And we can recommend clients to, to go and speak to people to make sure that it is what they want. You know, marriage is hard. But divorce is also really hard. Yes. So, yeah, it's about making sure that people have, you know, communicated those feelings. And, and if they haven't, is there an opportunity to do so now and make that, you know, and, and maybe turn that around? Yeah, yeah, I, I get it. So as a divorce lawyer, are you for or against the institution of marriage? And, and if so, um, whatever your answer is, why? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I think really when it comes to that, it, it's what's right for each family yes. um so for for some some families um they choose for various reasons um not to get married uh, and for other people it is really important and there are obviously um you know religious beliefs around marriage which which may sway one family more than another but ultimately i think the the, the biggest thing really is people understanding what marriage is you know, marriage is a huge contract. It's probably one of the biggest contracts you'll ever enter into. But not many people get any advice before they go into it. True. And that's also the same with cohabiting couples. Many couples who are cohabiting, they think that there's such thing as a common law husband or wife, and they have misconceptions about what rights they have by living together, which again are often completely untrue. So I think it's about ensuring the public are educated about what it means to just be living together as cohabitees and what it means to just be living together as a husband and wife or in the same sex marriage and people need to understand the differences so they can make the right choices for their family and I think that's where I think my concern comes from that people don't know the differences yeah and I meet lots of people who've been living together for many years and they think that 
that means they have a claim to their other half's pension um, and that they have the same rights as somebody who's married and they don't. Yes. Um, and the same for people getting married who have assets. They don't realise that those go into the matrimonial pot yeah. and that if you are to get divorced later on, that you know your spouse may have a share of that. So I think it's about educating the public so they can make those choices about what's right for them and their family. Yes, yes. So what do you think about prenup? Well, the answer is, in short, is if you've made a prenup and you've both been full and frank in your disclosure of your finances and yeah. you've both been open about what you have and you've both taken independent legal advice, you've not been pressured into it, it hasn't been done two days before the wedding, if they're done properly, then more likely than not, the court is going to place weight on them. And actually, an agreement that you've reached while you still care for each other and while you're being you know, sensible is probably likely to be the right decision for your family as opposed to you know, when it's all come crashing down and people are angry and emotional. So, yeah, I think if people are thinking about getting married, it's really important to think about that, particularly if you have assets or yeah. particularly if it's a second marriage where there may be children from previous marriages. You know, you have to think about if something happens, what's going to happen to those finances because something that somebody may think is going to their children may end up to an, to another spouse yes so yes. and that people can also have postnuptial agreements after you've got married if you've accumulated wealth into the marriage and well, it doesn't just have to be before you've got married yeah so i've met people where during the marriage one has inherited substantial amount of wealth and they've decided to come up with a postnup so that you know if they are to separate and go off and remarry that that wealth stays with their children Yes, yes. And how, how do you find that's received by the other spouse? That these things can cause conflict or are they generally, do, do you find that people who enter into these, they've been able to have a sensible discussion and reach an agreement? Yeah, I think it depends. I mean, one of the big post-natural agreements I did was for the wife who was receiving the inheritance and the husband was a lawyer. So yeah. he understood it and, and he was the one who recommended it to her. Yeah. But quite often you can have external family members who know that they want to leave money in their will, but they want to make sure it's going to go, you know, in, in the right way. So they might be imposing that a post-nup is done and that can cause a bit of conflict. But I think it's about reassuring people that, you know, this is just, it's it's financial planning. Yes. Um, it's it's about just making sure that things are okay, things go wrong. It's like having an insurance. Yes. Um, it doesn't mean it's going to happen. And that they're sensible conversations to have. It doesn't mean that you're going to get divorced later on, but it just means that if you do, that you've thought about it. So it's almost like an insurance policy, financial insurance policy. I don't know if you're if you're planning anything, isn't it? It's it's better to do it when everybody's calm and yes. you've got the time, rather than trying to plan something. It, it's I suppose it's being proactive rather than reactive. And quite often when we're doing things and we're being reactive, they're not always as as best as the things that we're doing that are proactive. Yes, I mean, I mean, what's what's interesting is the subject of money between couples can be such a hot one, can't it? Because we all get emotional around money, and um, just like people get emotional around property, houses, and all sorts of things that they they shouldn't get so emotional around, but people do. When you take the emotion out of it, it seems as though it's all very very simple. But would you say that? People tend not to do things like prenups, postnups, and so on because they don't want to stir up a hornet's nest in their relationships. Yeah, I think you can be right. And in some relationships, there may be a power imbalance when it comes to finances. So yeah. quite often, the person who needs to be protected, perhaps by way of a prenup, 
isn't going to be the person who initiates those conversations or goes to seek legal advice. And, you know, every family we meet runs their finances differently. You may have two people out working, you may have one person working, you may have somebody who came into the marriage with money, um, you may have people who use money as a way of controlling and manipulating the other person. Yeah. You have some people who know nothing about the family finances and, and can be quite embarrassed because they don't know anything. You know, but the other person may have been better about doing it, or they may not have been allowed to do it. So it, it can be very hard looking at different types of families and how they manage their money. And, and whatever that it is they do to them is, is quite normal to them. So, yeah, and that, I think the biggest thing can be the power imbalance in divorcing couples around finances. And, and when you say the power imbalance, I mean, what is the impact of a power imbalance? Well, quite often, if we meet people who, who don't know what the finances are, they will feel way more out of control of the situation than the other person. They may be being told stuff by the other person that may not be right. But again, if, if, if the person who has a lot of the power and has made all of the decisions yeah. in the marriage is telling this person, well, that's all you're going to get, so you might as well agree to these proposals, they may feel that that's right. So for us, it's, it's about educating people. So, you know, we offer a free appointment. And I would say to anybody going through a divorce, people might be scared about legal fees, but always go and get some initial advice because with the initial advice comes information and with information comes a bit of power. Yeah. And, and you just know what your rights are. That's why there can sometimes be conflict in the beginning because if somebody's being bullied into making a decision and then they get legal advice, but they're being told, actually, no, this isn't right, then there can be a bit of conflict because you know, the person who may be dominating and controlling all of a sudden doesn't have as much power and control as they thought, yes. um, which can then lead them to become a bit more aggressive during that part of the process to try and get their own way. And also there's a power imbalance. Perhaps if, if somebody has access to, to a lot of funds and the other person doesn't have access, how am I going to pay for legal fees? You know, they're going to go and be able to afford the best lawyer and I don't have any money. So that's why it's just important to go and have a free um, initial appointment so you can find out all of that information. Yes, if somebody is in a, a situation, they are the, the weaker person, in the, perhaps the, the non-working or the financially weaker person in the, in the um, relationship, how would they gain access to finances if somebody else has been controlling the finances in order to defend themselves and actually make sure that they, that they get the correct legal advice? Like I've said, the best thing to do is speak to a lawyer initially who will you'll be able to give you some free advice and they'll be able to talk to you about how how they charge and what services they offer. Yeah. Uh, we offer legal aid at our company. Um, it's very hard to get um, legal aid now. Um, there's the financial um, test and, they're all, and you also have to show that you have been a victim of domestic abuse. Right. And that can be quite hard um, for a lot of victims if they haven't shared their experiences with anybody. So, so it, is, it is very difficult to, to get legal aid. But there are also other options. There's litigation, loans and funding. Um, you can apply to the court for a legal services order where your um, spouse has to pay those legal fees. Um, there's interim maintenance that you can apply for so that the spouse with money has to you know, support the person through the interim process until longer term finances have been resolved. So there normally um, is always a way. Um, and then there are organisations such as Citizens Advice and other and other helpful organisations that can, you know, help give people some pointers. There's also mediation and um, legal aid is still available for um, mediation. So if you're on a low income um, and you want to go to mediation, then that's something that 
is funded and you can also then go and get legal advice along anything you discuss at mediation um, through a lawyer through legal aid so there are so many options and that's why it's always just worth giving that initial advice to find out what your options are right well well that that's absolutely brilliant back to you now donna just interested to know what or who inspired you to choose family law over any other legal discipline well, I think it's a complete cliche, really, but I, you know, I do like the feeling of helping others. When I was a teenager, I worked in um, a residential care home, helping look after the elderly. My boss at the time tried to encourage me into nursing, but it was I'm far too squeamish for that. But he was also a magistrate. Uh, he used to volunteer doing that, and and I've always had quite a passion about the law and the sense of what I feel is right and just. And yeah, and I think you know he sort of said to me, you know, you, you can do that if you want to. And um, yeah, I mean, at school. That wasn't um, the feedback that I had, but um, yeah, and I, you know, that's what I try. I work a lot now with students. I'm mentoring a student at Exeter University, and I work a lot with, you know, with students who come from more disadvantaged backgrounds. You know, to show them that they can, you know, that anybody can be, you know, a lawyer if that's what you want to do. If you've got the passion and the drive, you can go and do it. Yes. What would your advice be to young people that wanted to become a lawyer? What would be your number one nugget? That, that you would tell them for me i think one of the, one of the the best things to do is is to get out there and meet people so again getting on linkedin i've had lots of students message me on linkedin and just said look could i, could I meet you for a coffee and that's great for me because i can i can pop out of the office you know it doesn't take up too much time and i can give them some um you know direct advice there are numerous ways into the law i didn't go to university i couldn't because of my um, family situation but um, i worked and i studied there's now an apprenticeship in law so we've got a paralegal at the moment who's um, doing an apprenticeship so on the job training so there are so many different avenues you can get into so sometimes just meeting a coffee for somebody and sharing that information is really helpful and I think lots of people on LinkedIn are prepared to give up their time and help but also looking at you know doing some voluntary work for citizens advice or victim support or working in the court and doing some voluntary work there it, it sort of gives you a bit of experience because it's 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 quite tough um for young people now to, to enter into the profession yes it can be very competitive and yeah. um you know you have to have done all sorts of things and you know they, they you know quite a lot of people expect you to have done a huge amount of, of things actually if you're if you're from a background that maybe can't afford to be out doing voluntary work yeah um, you know it can be a lot tougher um yes. for those young people so doing something different like i did which is working and studying full-time can be make it more achievable Yes, although obviously it takes that drive and that vision and maybe some encouragement, doesn't it, to go down that route because it's not always easy, is it? Yeah, not at all. You know, you have to have somebody who, who believes in you, and whether that's somebody in your family or a friend or whether you find somebody professionally who can, you know, help to spare a bit of time. And, you know, what I found, um, you know, working in Exeter is that the business community is really friendly and, and is really wanting everybody to succeed. Yes. So, again, I think there would be so many people, you know, and I see lots of people who are out mentoring other people, you know, in their own time. And, you know, I think being a mentor, you learn a lot from it as well. So, yeah, you know, and, and don't give up. I think a lot, I think a lot of young people can feel, you know, that they aren't good enough, particularly, you know, with this world that we live in now of being perfect and having to have all the best grades and all of these things. Yeah. You know, when we interview people here, their CV will be the last thing that we look at, you know, we'll be talking to the person, you know, are they positive? Are they going to help our clients? Are they, you know, are they keen to learn? Are they enthusiastic? Are they going to make people feel good about themselves? And those are the things that, you know, that we would focus on before looking at 
you know their educational background because that's just a small part of our job yes uh, absolutely donna what would you like to be remembered for well i think the encouragement of others really i've set up a mentoring scheme here at the family law company so we've got lots of people here who are, who are mentoring and, and who, are, who are being mentored and i know that they found great value in that and i think young people are lacking in a lot of self-confidence yeah. so i think it's just getting a lot of people to believe in themselves and know that actually you, you can do whatever it is you you want to do it might take a little bit of hard work and for some people like myself the track you know the path may not be quite as easy um yeah. but but that's what's great actually if your path's more interesting you learn a lot more things along the way and okay. i think yeah, and i think it probably makes you a better lawyer it makes you a better leader a better people person yeah yeah and, and if you're going into family law you know those are the skills that ultimately are going to make you a successful lawyer definitely definitely so a, a final question for you for you donna i ask all of my interviewees so i'd love to hear a bit more about how you start and end the day do you have any particular habits that you that you'd like to share with us I think habits are really important to have, particularly healthy habits. So when I changed um, my working week 18 months ago, I made I made quite a lot of changes to my life and about you know developing healthy habits so they just become part of my everyday life. So I do get up really early. I'm not a morning person. Yeah. Um, I love my bed, but I do like that quiet time in the morning. Yes. So in the summer, that might be out walking the dog, just getting some fresh air before I do anything. Or oh, in the winter, it might be ten minutes on a meditation app. Um, or something like that but I like my morning to feel calm so I like to have a good breakfast I don't like to feel like I've been rushing around because I think if you get to the office and you feel you've been rushing or all of those things you come in feeling stressed and it's not the best way to start your day um, we try and encourage people to cycle to work if you live nearby you know it's not always possible we do a lot of things outside of work so quite often um, we, we, you know we can't always do that but you know cycling to work can be great and where we live in Devon there's so many great cycle tracks but yeah I exercise I have to I have to exercise I find it really really helpful yeah you know with resilience and all those sorts of things but I just think how you start your morning sets the tone for the day yeah so I think it's really important to have me time I mean I don't have children but I know a lot of my colleagues whose mornings can't be that way because they're trying to get children into nursery and school and but you know we have talked about actually even if you get up half an hour before and maybe just go and have your shower and a cup of coffee on your own yes. um, maybe read a magazine it just helps you feel a bit calmer before the chaos of the day and at first it can be a bit tricky getting up that bit earlier but you eventually you get used to it and it just becomes you know becomes another habit yeah my evening routine again I'm quite a chilled person actually I don't like to do anything too stressful in the evening <laughs> I do do a lot of networking events and I'm out and about in the week quite a lot so I don't then have a huge amount of downtime at home but what we're trying to do here is make sure that um, our staff aren't spending huge amounts of time on their phone in the evening so yeah what we're doing at the moment is we've all just collated our information about how many hours we've spent on our phones Yes. you can see on your phone yeah. and we were all quite shocked so we've all made a commitment that we'll reduce it over the month by 10 percent right um, and and do it um a, a bit more so yeah so what i'm trying to do now is read a bit more yeah we've got a library in our reception area actually right. with lots of um helpful books that we loan out to clients um but also for staff and just so that's what i try and do try and just wind down a bit before bed read something quite light nothing too heavy 
and don't have the phone in the bedroom. Yeah, yeah. Great, great. By the way, what time is early for you when you say you get up early? Because early is different times. Yeah, for me, it's probably around five or half five. Yeah, yeah. So you are a member of the 5am club then? <laughs> yeah, I mean, my husband um, starts work early anyway, so he's he's naturally, he, he's up and about. So yeah, that doesn't always mean I get out of bed at 5am. No. <laughs> it might mean I just lay there for a moment and just gather my thoughts and think about my day and what I'm going to do. And, and, and yeah, and at the weekends, I do not get up at, at five. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, that, that's great. It's been so lovely to speak to you, Donna. Thank you so much for participating in this podcast. Um, well, thank you. Yeah. Well, we'll look forward to getting it, getting it up and, you know, spreading, spreading the word. You very much i hope you have a wonderful rest of the year yeah and you thank you very much thanks for listening to the smart connector podcast if you've enjoyed this episode why not head over to janebaylor.com and order a copy of my free report on building your personal brand i'd love to connect with you on social media and finally don't forget to like and subscribe to my podcast so that you never miss a show thanks for listening in and see you soon